0: Please bow with me as we pray. We thank you so much, our Heavenly Father, that you are the God who never lies. Thank you that you have given us a sure word, breathed out by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is concerned to glorify you and your Son, the Lord Jesus, that he is the one who illumines our minds and leads us to Christ and repentance and faith. And we pray that he might have that ministry uh, among all of us tonight. Heavenly Father, you know us, I don't know people here, but you're the one who knows us and we pray that this word that is going to be preached tonight would be just the right word that we need for our living today and in the weeks to come. Bring glory to yourself, we pray. For we pray because of the merits of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus. Amen. They taught me how to speak. They gave me my enduring moral values. My parents. Your parents probably did the same for you. But my parents are not the most influential people in my life. I've been married to her for 46 years. I know what she's going to say even when she said half of it. I could finish the sentence and she could finish mine. I know what she's thinking just by looking at her. My wife, influential, but not the most influential person in my life. John Mitchell, when I was in second last year of high school, gave me an interest in and a love for economics. Now, that's a big thing, but he was such an enthusiastic teacher. But he's not the most influential person in my life. My youth worker, who in 1967 discipled me, influential, but not the most influential person in my life. The person who preached, and I truly heard the gospel and was saved influential, but not the most influential person in my life. Who is the most influential person in your life? If you name, like me, parents, spouse, youth worker, minister, I put it to you that you're not answering correctly because the most influential person in your life, without a doubt, is you. Have you noticed that everywhere you go, you go, You're here in church. Do you notice? You're here in church. You didn't leave you behind. You're here. You're going on a picnic. You're on the picnic. You go to the movies. You go to the movies. You've got a family. Oh, you've got the same family as you've got. You never leave yourself behind. And you are constantly talking to yourself. See, So even as I speak, you can be talking over the top of me because you're talking to yourself. You are the most influential person in your life. And my question for you tonight is, are you talking to yourself? And what are you saying to yourself about yourself? And I want to put it to you, if you've got your Bibles there, please open them here to Romans chapter 12. Because these first two verses in particular are the sorts of things that I want to say to me, influential me, wants to say to influential me. And it seems to me that if you do talk to yourself, all too often we as Christians are saying the wrong sorts of things to ourselves. And we need to be saying to ourselves what God says to us about us. So you, influential you, pick up your Bible and look at what God says here. See what he says? Therefore, in view of everything that he said so far in this great letter... I urge you, I implore you, I beseech you. Literally, he says, brothers and sisters, the great apostle puts himself on a level with us and he says, in view of God's mercy, in literally plural, mercies, the intensity of those mercies. In other words, Paul uses this expression, in view of God's mercies, to sum up everything that he said in the first 11 chapters, that God has dealt mercifully with you, that graciously he has saved you that he has forgiven your sin, that he has adopted you into his family, that he has credited you with the perfection or righteousness which you need, which was in his son, Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul says, in view of God's mercies, in view of what God has done. Now, my last four years of being involved in pastoral ministry was in a Chinese Presbyterian church. And once a month I'd sit down with the 70 or 80 youth, uh, young teenagers in our church and I'd have them for an hour on a Sunday morning. Half an hour I'd speak, half an hour they'd ask questions. And I'd often say to them, when you're, and I'd say this to their parents too, when you are raising children, as they're growing up, you'll tell them what to do. But your children will reach a certain age whereby if you just tell them what to do, without also telling them why to do it, they'll soon stop doing the what because they don't understand the why. And I would challenge people to see that God respects you and me because when he tells us what, he also tells us why. God never gives us a command without also telling us why. Think back to the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. But the Ten Commandments are preceded by that one verse. I am the Lord your God who redeemed you out of Egypt. You are my redeemed people, therefore live this way. The what is always accompanied by the why. Now, I don't know if you watch the royal family, but in our family, we watch the royal family whenever we can. And uh, we watch the wedding of William and Catherine at Westminster Abbey, preacher, Bishop of London, Bible reading, Romans chapter 12. We watch the Diamond Jubilee Service, Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral for Her Majesty the Queen. Bible reading, Romans 12. Preacher, Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, I put it to you that if you listen to both those sermons, both preachers did exactly the same thing, which would earn a fail at the Presbyterian Theological College. They told the audience what to do. Be good citizens. Be responsible servants. But they made no mention of the why. Why? And notice that Paul doesn't tell us what to do in this verse. Look at verse 1. He makes it quite clear why. In view, because of God's mercies. He's telling us why. Now, a man by the name of T. David Gordon goes along to his doctor in the United States. He is uh, diagnosed with a a grade 4 bowel tumour terminal. Go home and get your affairs in order. T. David Gordon goes home and he thinks, well, I'm going to die. I'll only die once. He's a Christian man. I'll write a book about what really makes me angry. And he wrote a book called Why Johnny Can't Preach, The State of Preaching in the American Church. Now, as far as I know, T. David Gordon is still alive and he's still writing angry books. His next book was Why Johnny Can't Sing, The State of Singing in the American Church, and it is blisteringly red-hot angry. But listen to what he says about why Johnny can't preach. He says... Ethical exhortation must never be divorced from its redemptive environment. In other words, the preacher must never tell the congregation what to do without telling them why to do it. See, the reason is God has redeemed you, therefore live this way. It's not a matter of living his way in order to get God to to redeem you. No, here is the why and here is the what. Now look again at verse 1. And in view of God's mercies, there is the why. Paul now tells us the what. Offer your bodies, he says, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Therefore, you are to see yourself not as a dead sacrifice, which Israel knew all about. But I am to see myself as a living sacrifice. Now, let's see how Paul puts that in another way. Flip in your Bible, keep your finger there and flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 and I'm reading from verse 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, same author, slightly different way. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And what went through the mind of Jesus on the cross? Look at verse 15. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but rather for him who died for them and was raised again. He gave his life for me, the life I have, I live for him as a living sacrifice. How does this work out in practice? Come back about five pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, notice the what comes before the why, verse 18, what? Flee from sexual immorality. The word he uses is the word porneia. Flee from it. What? Flee. Why? He gives us three reasons. Because all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he sins sexually, sins against his own body. Flee from sexual immorality because it's a sin against your body which has been made in the image of God. Point two, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is literally a shrine or temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Because of what you believe about the body, because of what we believe about the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, look at verse 19. You are not your own. You are bought at a price, redeemed. Therefore, honour God with your body. In other words, you don't have a sex life. You don't. Because God has bought you lock, stock and barrel. You do not belong to you. See, I therefore, because of God's mercy, seen in the redemptive activity of his son, since he gave his life for me at the cross, I see myself as a living sacrifice, and I live for him the life that he has purchased to be mine. Now, come back, if you would, to Romans 12, 1, verse 1. And notice that Paul says that this verse 1 is, in my translation, your spiritual act of worship. But if your translation says something like that, it's probably got a footnote, and if you go to the bottom of the page, my footnote says that this could be reasonable, spiritual or reasonable. And yet when I talk to people who live around us, and they find that I'm a Christian, they say, oh, we're very spiritual too. I say, what does that mean? And it just means nonsense as far as I can see. There is no relationship between being spiritual and being reasonable. So the word here is actually the word from which we get our word logical. This is your logical response. This is your reasonable response. Here is red hot steel. Don't touch it. It is reasonable not to touch it. Here is a bottle with a skull and crossbones mark on it. Don't drink from it. It's poison. It's reasonable not to do it. Now notice what the Apostle Paul is therefore saying. Your logical response to God's mercies is for me to see myself as a living sacrifice. Good morning, living sacrifice. That's who you are because of the redemptive activity of God. And you say, well, that sounds all very well. I can see that in verse 1, but what does that mean? Well, look at verse 2. And it means two things, according to the apostle. It means that you will actively resist, though if you've got the ESV, the English Standard Version, it's in the passive, do not be conformed. Or do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You will reject the pattern of the world. The pattern of the world is the pattern of Adam. You marry yourself and you divorce God. And the Apostle Paul says that if you're going to be a living sacrifice, I need to recognise the pattern of the world is very infectious and I need to resist it. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But notice secondly what it means. It means that I will be transformed in my character by the renewing of my mind. My mind is renewed and that leads to transformation of character into godliness. Now notice what that says because when I'm reading the Bible with other men I actually have to come back to that. It is by the renewing of your mind. It is not by the renewing of your emotions. Now last year for one reason or another which I won't go into my wife and I found ourselves at a silly movie. It was called Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I don't know if you saw it. I took my sisters along. We all sat there and we watched this movie. And it was silly. But in this movie, if you remember, there's a raccoon, a green raccoon, and it speaks. And this raccoon is talking to this man who has a blue head with a fin in the middle of his head. And the raccoon is saying something like, I've come to the end of myself and I've decided to become a better raccoon. I've decided to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to become a better raccoon. And as I sat there, I could feel the tears coming into my eyes. A better raccoon, isn't that lovely? And I had to slap myself, what are you doing? You're crying about a raccoon, a talking raccoon, becoming a better raccoon? You see, it's not my emotions. My football team wins, I'm up here. They lose, I'm down here. Transformation is going to come by the renewal of how I feel. Notice transformation comes by the renewal of your mind. Now, Paul has said something about this already. Come back with you to Romans chapter 1 and look at what he says about the mind in Romans chapter 1. You remember in Romans chapter 1 verse 28, Paul has said because people have turned to worship the created things rather than the Creator... God has given them over to various things. Verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to what? To a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Humankind, therefore, has a perverted mind. You watch the news and you think, how could people do such things? Because the judgment of God is on their way of thinking. It is on their mind and they have a mind which is counterfeit, part of the judgment of God. Now come with me to Romans 12.2 and look at this. Paul now tells us that the judgment of God has been lifted from our mind and because our mind has been renewed, transformation comes and then he says in verse 2, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Because I'm a newborn person in Christ, because God has given me a new mind and lifted his judgment off my mind, I now see the big purpose of God. And I can now affirm that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And Paul says, look to the renewing of that new mind. Press your mind, extend your mind, engage with the truth with that mind and see that that mind turns into transformation of character. Our youngest son was off to Hollywood for the first time. And I'm driving him to the airport. 21 years of age, our youngest, going to Hollywood. He said, any advice for me, Dad, before I go? I said, too right, I've got advice for you. I said, you read your Bible every day. Any advice as to where I should start to write? Read the book of Proverbs and keep reading it. And don't rush through it. Read for one minute and think about what you've read for four. Or read for two And think for eight. But read and engage your mind and think. Think about what the writer is saying. Think about why he is saying it like this. Think about what God is saying to you through this text. One to four, Luke. Read it. Renew your mind. When I'm in London, we go to a church called St Helens in Bishopsgate. The reception at the desk one day when I was there came back from lunch and put the book she was reading in her bag. I said, Janet, what are you reading? She pulled the book out and showed me the inside cover, Dear Janet with Love from Don, Christmas 1988, and she had ticked Christmas 1988. Underneath that, she had written 2004 and she had ticked 2004, and underneath that she had written 2015. And she hadn't ticked it because she hadn't read it yet for the third time. She was in the process of doing that. Some cheap throwaway paperback, a 500-page paperback, probably the greatest Christian book of the 20th century, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Have you read it once? She's in the process. She was in the process of reading it three times. Renew your mind. See that that mind being renewed you take it seriously, you prize it because it's new, leads to transformation of character. And notice that the Apostle Paul, ever practical, says, let me tell you about three arenas in which this is going to make a difference. Look at verse 3. He says, what in your mind now will you think about yourself? Verse 3, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. With this mind, I won't think of myself as independent. I don't need anybody here. I've got all the gifts I need. No, you haven't. You've got some. But your brothers and sisters have others. And they need you and you need them to make a complete contribution. Look at verse 5. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Think of yourself with sobriety, with temperance. Don't big note yourself, but don't belittle yourself either. Because you do have some of the gifts. All right, with this mind, how am I to think of my brothers and sisters? Look at verse 9, and you have to follow me as I read. The apostle says, love must be sincere. How? By hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. How? By honouring one another above yourselves. Look at verse 11. Haven't you ever asked this one? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour. How do I do that? By serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, but that's so hard. By being faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. How? By practising, by pursuing, looking for every opportunity to be hospitable. That's how the renewed mind. None of these things come naturally to me. I tend to think too big or too little of myself. I tend to be selfish in my attitude to my fellow believers. I tend to be more of a newspaper person than a people person. I'd rather have the paper than people. And yet here, it tells me that the renewed mind looks for these opportunities. And probably the third area from verse 14, what about the area of antagonism? How does the new mind relate to that area? Bless, give a eulogy... Verse 14, to those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those. Look, it's the very opposite for me. When my enemy rejoices, I'm ple- I'm sad. When my enemy mourns, I'm happy. But the renewed mind, the Apostle Paul says, rejoices with those who rejoice and mourns with those who mourn. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with it. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. It's very opposite of what I want to naturally do. Uh, Maxine and I have two sons, three daughters, two sons, and our sons love cricket. At Christmas, I was buying gifts, and I saw a book on the shelves called The 100. I naturally thought it was a book about cricket, But when I pulled it down by Michael Hart, it had nothing to do with cricket. It was Michael Hart's ranking of the 100 most influential people in history. I turned up number one, the most influential person in history, Mohammed. Number two, the father of modern science, Isaac Newton. Number three, Jesus, just scraped in by the skin of his teeth to third place. And I was ready to argue with Michael Hart, but this is what he says. I'm neither a Muslim nor a Christian. But on my observation, Muhammad has far more influence in the lives of Muslims than Jesus in the lives of Christians. And he says, I'll give you one example. Jesus' most unique ethical contribution is to love your enemies. I don't see Christians doing that, he says. And I don't see them teaching their children to do it. See, here it is. Bless those who persecute The last thing I want to do is bless my persecutor, but bless those who persecute you. And notice he quotes in verse 20 from Proverbs 25. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something. He's my enemy. Why would I feed him? If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Is it a way of me showing hatred to him? Now you're responding in great generosity. It is a way of helping him to see the shame and disrespect, of responding to your generosity in such a hateful way. Here are the Uptons, first missionaries to Taiwan in the southern area of Taiwan. When the local Buddhist monk hears their coming, he comes out at 7am each day till 7pm, 12 hours every day, lets off fireworks, sings out incantations to get rid of these foreign devils. This goes on for one week. And Mrs Upton says to her husband, let's get down there a half an hour before he arrives. We'll set up a stool, a table, an umbrella, a pot of green tea and some steamed rice. We want this man to know that he's welcome. And after a week, the neighbours come out and say to this monk, go away. You shame us. These people are being kind and generous to you. Dear friends, it does not come naturally. But with a new mind, transformation comes through this renewal of our mind and seeing things according to the lens of God. And this most practical of letters, uh, sorry, theological of letters, Romans, ends in this most practical of ways. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's what Paul is saying. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of God's mercy is all about what he has done. His gracious generosity in your own life means that you respond in this rational way by seeing yourself as a living sacrifice. What does this mean? It means resisting the pattern of living of the world and it means the renewal of your mind which leads to the transformation of your character. And look at how this applies the way you think about yourself, the way you think about your brethren, and the way you think about the antagonists or persecutors who are out there waiting for you. This is contrary to a natural way of thinking, but this is the way the new mind thinks. What do you say to you, about you. By the mercies of God, I am a living sacrifice. I resist, I see as precious my mind, I focus on what God's truth says, and I see the transformation of character. A few years ago, my parents died. I have two older sisters. My parents left to us the family home, which is in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, overlooking the beach. We went to auction. The auctioneer, real estate agent Natalie, at the end of the auction came to me and said, Mr Cook, we've sold the house. The man who has bought it has paid 10% of the sale price and that has gone into my trust account. In six weeks, he will pay the rest. Sure enough, five and a half weeks later, Natalie rang me. Mr Cook, he's about to pay the rest, but first I need the keys. I said, Natalie, you need the keys. Do you realise that our family moved to this house when I was four years old? Do you realise that every birthday was celebrated in that house, every Christmas, in that family room, on that front veranda? This is our family home. No, I want to keep at least one set of keys. Well, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Mr Cook, if you don't give me the keys, if you don't give up ownership, you're not going to get the whole price from the auction. You can't claim the benefit of the auction and deny its implications. And dear friends, how often I do that in my own life. I've been bought. I've been redeemed. You cannot claim the benefit of redemption, being God's child, and deny its implications. That I don't belong to me. He bought me. That's what God says, doesn't it, to Israel? He redeemed the firstborn sons at the Passover and he tells them immediately, I remind you, they're no longer your sons. I bought them. They're mine. You cannot, therefore, claim the benefits of redemption and deny its implication. And that's what Paul's saying here. If you're a Christian because it's a passport to heaven, now live any way you please, forget it. Paul says you're a living sacrifice. That's your rational response. So here's a symbol for you, the American Board of Mission. They have no words in their trademark, they just have a symbol. It's the symbol of an ox. And the ox seems to be looking two ways. One is at a plough, one is at an altar. You determine whether I will live and pull the plough or whether I will die and lay down my life on the altar. But that choice is not mine. What do you say to you about you? That recognises that you are the most influential person in your life. I urge you, brethren, because of God's mercies to us, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is your reasonable response. Don't conform to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.